Welcome to the December 2019 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. And in this episode, we'll start things off with a research success story from the genealogy community in our Tree Talk segment. And then the editor of Family Tree Magazine, Andrew Cook, is going to join me for a recap of what's happened in the world of genealogy in 2019 and what he sees on the horizon for 2020. Then we'll meet up with DNA expert Diane Southern to get some clarity around triangulation. If you've ever wondered what this is all about, Diane will explain it in our DNA Deconstructed segment. Author Rick Krum is going to be here to cover some of the best websites for genealogy coast to coast. And in our Stories from the Stacks segment, we're going to visit the New York Public Library. As you can hear, there's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. We're going to start out with some tree talk. Here in the Tree Talk segment, we hear from you about your genealogical successes, but we also love hearing from the pros. And this month, I wanted to share with you a success story from Rich Venezia. Now, he's been here on the show before, and he recently shared in an article on Family Tree Magazine's website how he did it, how he found answers in Civil War pension index cards. So he says, James McCabe, born about June 1849 in New York City, has been a recent research subject of interest. We have gathered census documents, vital records, newspapers, articles, etc., all trying to find as to his parents' place of origin. On one of the last documents obtained, his wife's obituary, a curious piece of information was found. Catherine McCabe's obituary in a 1938 Jersey City newspaper specified, quote, Her late husband was a veteran of the Civil War, unquote. This made me pause, he says, because of James' birth in 1849, I'd always thought that he would have been a bit too young to serve. There was no indication in the 1910 census of his status as veteran either. So off down the rabbit hole we went. I first searched the New York Civil War muster roll abstracts, 1861 to 1900, on Ancestry. And these records were compiled from muster rolls for New York units in the Civil War. There were over 50 matches for James McCabe or similar, but none seemed to be our guy based on age, place of birth, enlistment location, or some other factor, like killed or deserted during the war, for instance. This seems strange. Catherine's obituary had stated that he was a member of the GAR, suggesting he would have been a proud and likely documented veteran. Next, I turn to the 1890 Veterans Census Schedules. This special census schedule was meant to list all Union veterans or their widows living in the U.S. While some schedules do not survive, the ones for New Jersey do. Our James McCabe was living in Jersey City by the mid-1880s, so he should show up there. Except he doesn't. At this point, I was worried I would need to research every single James McCabe who fought for New York, or worse, the entire Union Army. Then I remembered that some Civil War pension index cards list a date, and occasionally even a place of death. There are two resources available, an index on Ancestry.com, which is National Archives Microfilm T288, which is entirely alphabetical, and an index on Fold 3, which is the National Archives microfilm T289, which is broken down by regiment. 
Since I had yet to determine James' regiment, I looked through the 87 alphabetical index cards on Ancestry.com for veterans named James McCabe, who had applied for pensions, and found a match. A James McCabe who fought for both Company H and Company B of the 93rd New York National Guard Infantry died 9 March 1928, the same date my James McCabe of interest died. It also helps corroborate his widow's name as Catherine. The index card on Fold 3, under 93rd New York Infantry Regiment, Company H, corroborates his death place as Jersey City, New Jersey. Without these pension index cards, I might have been stuck sifting through dozens of incorrect James McCabe's. Now, of course, when I pulled the pensions at the National Archives last week, it appeared that this James McCabe was confused with another James McCabe who also served in Company H. But that's a whole nother story. I love hearing these success stories. This one came from Rich Venezia. He's a professional genealogist and founder of Rich's Roots Genealogy, which specializes in 20th century immigrant ancestry. You can find his article at FamilyTreeMagazine.com, and I'll have a link for you in the show notes. If you want to share your success story, do that on our Facebook page. Head to Facebook and search for Family Tree Magazine and tell us your story. I'd love to feature it here on the podcast. Well, it's the end of the year, and it's a great time to be thinking about the year to come. So in today's featured segment, I've invited the editor of Family Tree Magazine, Andrew Cook, to join us here on the show. And let's do a quick review of 2019 and see what's ahead for 2020. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Lisa. It's great to have you here. Great to be back here at the podcast. And there's been a lot going on in 2019. Genealogy just never sits still, does it? No, it really doesn't. Uh, And it's been really interesting coming to the end of the year, thinking about all the new developments that have taken place, the new records that have been digitized, and the new tools that are available for genealogists. Well, we got to talk about DNA, because that's, of course, one of the ones that continues to dominate and also continues to put out a lot of new tools. So uh, give us a little recap. What's really caught your eye this year? So what strikes me the most about genetic genealogy in 2019 are the new ways that people are using DNA. So towards the beginning of the year, both Ancestry and MyHeritage both announced new tools that combine DNA and match information with records and online family trees to provide new ways of looking at your family using genetic tools. So Ancestry, of course, has the ThruLines tool, which is still in beta, and MyHeritage has the theory of family relativity. It's funny, when it first came out, everybody was like, what do I do with this? How do I work with this? But wow, now the technology, the tools are really catching up. And it's it's been exciting to see what people are finding. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that is a lot of people's first responses once they get the results. Oh, this is great. But what do I do now? And so uh, these two tools really provide a lot of direction in suggesting the different ways that you and your matches might be related to each other. Exactly. And now these testing companies are also adding health screening into the mix. What do you think about that? Do you think that's of interest to genealogists? Oh, absolutely. I think that's another um, pretty clear benefit for people who decide to take DNA tests, whether just for genealogy or especially for people who might not know their family's medical history, you know, if they were adopted or if for other reasons they didn't know their birth parents. 
fact, I think MyHeritage just announced a few more tests have been added. So I think we're going to continue to see that certainly grow. And another area that we're seeing kind of expanding is the use of genetic genealogy in criminal investigations. <laughs> you guys have been reporting about that a lot on Family Tree Magazine. We have. And, you know, that was one of the really big news stories from 2018 is when law enforcement agencies used information from GEDmatch to crack the Golden State Killer case. And that sort of opened the floodgates, I think, for DNA and law enforcement. Um, earlier this year, Family Tree DNA sort of was pretty open about how it was going to cooperate with law enforcement agencies, provided, of course, that they had the uh, proper legal documentation to use the information in its database. Although it is worth noting that Family Tree DNA will allow its users to opt out of the database in general, but also uh, any cooperation with law enforcement. So it'll be interesting to see if those developments and the prevalence of law enforcement agencies using DNA databases has a chilling effect on whether people decide to test or not. Yeah, and I think we would be naive to think that genealogy might be the only other side industry, if you will, that will be affected by DNA. The idea that DNA testing, when it was first came out, I mean, nobody even really thought about how it would be used. Right, right. It certainly has affected genealogy, it's affected criminal investigation, but it absolutely could touch a lot of other industries as well. So having that ability to read the terms and opt out if desired, you know, that might become even more of an issue in the future. So when it comes to records digitization, there's been a lot of activity. Uh, what has caught your eye this year? So a lot of records, um, obviously, are coming online as FamilySearch continues to shore up its microfilm digitization, and as the major genealogy companies try to reach out to new markets and bring online collections that have long been lost or have been sort of buried in these regional archives. So um, our contributing editor, Sonny Morton, is writing a great roundup of the major record releases for 2019, and that'll be in our January-February issue of 2020. But some of the highlights for me were new Holocaust collections at Ancestry, including 10 million records of foreigners and persecutees living in Germany during World War II, um, a huge collection of Welsh records, mostly parish registers that are now available at Find My Past, and newly available World War II draft records at FamilySearch and Ancestry. Yeah, I love seeing those new records come out. <laughs> I could just bust open a brick wall tomorrow and you never saw it coming. That's exciting. And there's been a lot of activity, of course, in the genealogy industry, the players that are digitizing these records. What are you seeing in terms of the partnerships and the mergers that are happening? I think it's interesting to see how these different organizations and companies are beginning to work together. You know, it's not often in the genealogy space where there's a piece of news that you hear and you kind of stop what you're doing and go, oh, wow, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. And for, for us, one of those moments this year was in August when NGS and FGS announced that they would be merging in 2020. These two pillars of the genealogy community who have different but complementary services coming together and it'll be really interesting to see how that develops in the year to come. Uh, I could see some of the advantages. So it'll be exciting to see how it how it develops. And there's a lot going to be developing in 2020. Looking ahead, what have you got your eye on? One trend that we're kind of tracking here at Family Tree is the emphasis that companies and conferences are putting on storytelling and breathing life into the names and dates that are turned up by genealogical research. So you look at what Rootstech their theme for 2020 in Salt Lake City is the story of you. 
And uh, at the time of recording, they've only announced one keynote speaker, but it's David Kennerly, who's a Pulitzer-winning photographer. Sort of not your typical family history down in the archives kind of figure. And NGS is sort of following that trend with their own conference, Echoes of Our Ancestors. So it'll be interesting to see how these organizations continue to highlight the ways that we can tell our ancestor stories and the different tools that are available to us. Yeah, there definitely seems to be a trend. And we're seeing a trend in international conferences as well. I know Roots Tech got to London for the first time this year. And um, My Heritage has been out there. How about 2020? So at the end of the My Heritage Live conference in 2019, they sort of teased their 2020 conference and said that it would be in their home country of Israel. So they haven't announced any more details about that, again, at the time of recording. But it'll be interesting to see how they continue to move into these new places, into these new countries, reaching new conference goers who maybe weren't able to attend these conferences on the mainland in Europe. And it'll be interesting, too, to see if Rootstack decides to do another international conference, either in London or somewhere else. There's a lot to look forward to in 2020. Of course, everybody listening can keep their eye on Family Tree Magazine, because that's where you're going to hear about it, and also here on this podcast. Andrew, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much for uh, sharing your reflections on 2019 and your look ahead at 2020. Of course. Well, in this month's DNA Deconstructed segment, we're going to talk about a topic that you've probably heard about, but maybe you're not quite sure what all this means. And it's about triangulation. And here to help make sense of it all for us is Diane Southard. Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa. And yeah, you're right. (laughs) This is a buzzword. (laughs) It is. And it sounds, wow, it's like, oh, I should be doing that. But break it down for us. What does this mean? Triangulation. Well, Yeah, so there's really two ways that people are using this word, and that, I think, is what is contributing most to the confusion, because it really means two different things depending on who you're talking to. So one group of people uses the word to mean that three people, so triangle, right, three people Mm -hmm. are sharing the same exact piece of DNA. So we call those pieces segments. So That's now kind of more people are saying now segment triangulation when they're talking about that kind of triangulation. So same exact piece of DNA shared by three people. So that's one kind of triangulation. The other kind of triangulation just means that three people share DNA with each other. So it doesn't have to be the same piece. They just share some DNA somewhere with each other. Oh, interesting. So it's not the same piece amongst all three. Right, exactly, exactly. So the problem is that um, this process of triangulation is actually essential to doing genetic genealogy research. But segment triangulation, the part where you people feel like they have to figure out exactly which piece of DNA they're sharing, isn't essential. So people hear about the process and they hear that it's really important and then they feel like they have to pull up these what are called chromosome browsers where you can actually see the pieces of DNA that are shared. And that's when you kind of get into the woods and you have to learn how to use different tools and not all companies offer that. And and it gets people down this rabbit hole because they feel like it's an essential part of what they're doing when the triangulation process, finding people who are sharing pieces of DNA is essential The fact that people have to share the same piece of DNA is not essential. So 
yeah, you can see how people get lost. And in a nutshell, why is it not essential? Because it kind of makes sense. You're thinking about in a in a pedigree chart, you know, one line connects to the another. It doesn't matter that you're following this exact same piece. Because what there's enough data from the rest of it? Right, right. And that's that's you brought up an excellent point. So it makes sense to us intuitively mm-hmm. that a piece of DNA shared between, say, you and I, we know that had to come from somewhere, right? So let's say it came from our three times great grandfather. Okay, so you and I share a piece of DNA we got from our three times great grandfather. Perfect. So then we bring in a third person, let's call her Sally. And we're looking at Sally's DNA, and it would make sense to us, like intuitively, that Sally, if she shares that ancestor with us, will share that piece of DNA because isn't that piece of DNA representing our ancestor? And initially, we're like, well, yeah, she should share that piece. But when you really think about it, mathematically, it doesn't make sense at all. So let's go all the way back to that three times great grandfather that we share, you and me and Sally. So we all share that three times great grandfather because we are descendants of different children, of that three times great grandfather, right? Mm -hmm. So because when DNA is passed down, only half of our three times great grandfather's DNA went to each of his children, right? So already at that generation way back there, that person only has half of that grandparent's DNA. And then it goes half again and half again and half again and half again before it even gets to us. So thinking about it that way, it seems actually illogical that the three of us should have the exact same piece of DNA from that three times great grandfather. That the same piece has survived all of those halvings all the way down actually doesn't make that much sense. It makes a lot more sense that you and I share one piece like on chromosome eight with Sally. I share a piece from him I got on chromosome 11. And then you and Sally share a piece of DNA from chromosome two. That's how it should work. We should all share different pieces of DNA with each other that all came from that same guy. That actually makes so much more sense when you think about it. I almost think of it as like, if we were all going to grandma's house for Christmas this year, we'd all get there, but we'd get there through different paths. We don't all have to take one super highway to get there, correct? Exactly. And some of us might drive on the same roads for a little while, but we don't all take exactly the same route. And it just shows that all of us know how to get back to grandma's (laughs) because we all have this route in our mind, but it doesn't have to be the same one. Well, so there you go. In some ways, you're kind of letting everybody off the hook a little bit from having to feel like they have to be a super scientist with following this exact one segment. But there's so much more to work with. And that's an encouraging message. Um, And I know that you wrote about this in an article called Triple Play DNA Matches Triangulation, and that's available to the Family Tree Magazine premium members. So um, we just love the way you kind of clarify and simplify this. It really makes DNA accessible to everybody. Thank you so much, Diane. Of course. Thanks for having me, Lisa. It's always a pleasure. In our Best Genealogy website segment, we're going to take a look at some of the best websites that you're going to want to focus on in the new year ahead. And we're going to do that with Rick Kroom. He's the author of the article, all Americans. Welcome back to the show, Rick. Hi, Lisa. Good to talk to you again. And it looks like this article that you wrote for the magazine, which is our is the magazine's annual uh, list of the best websites. This one's got 75. I'm guessing they're all US focused. Am I right? That's right. 
Well, I thought we could maybe take our listeners on a little trip across the country. Would you share a couple of the websites that made the list from the East Coast? Sure. Uh, Here are a couple of returning favorites from the German and Italian genealogy groups. Uh, Volunteers from those two groups have created indexes to births, marriages, deaths, naturalizations, and church records in New York City and Long Island. You have to visit both sites, the German genealogy group and the Italian genealogy group websites separately. They have um, distinct collections of records. Um, The German genealogy group site has 22.7 million records. And, for example, one database is an index to New York City births from 1858 to 1909. It has more than 2.2 million birth records. And so you could start your search with an index on that site, and now you can actually go to a family history center and view those New York City vital records for free. So start out checking the indexes online on the German genealogy group site, and then you can access the records for free. The Italian genealogy group seems to be working closely with the German genealogy group to index New York City vital records and Um, For example, on the Italian genealogy group websites, they have over 2.2 million birth records in their index covering 1878 to 1909. So those German and Italian genealogy groups websites are really um, terrific resources for New York City research. And they're also adding some other resources too. For example, the German genealogy group recently updated their German emigration database. It now has Um, over 132,500 names of emigrants from Germany between 1823 and 1873. So those are both terrific websites. I love those because those are smaller, kind of more niche websites that might not cross our paths without seeing them here on the list. And they're just terrific resources. Moving on to the Midwest, I could point out a couple of websites. The Indiana State Library's genealogy collection um, keeps growing. They have indexes to marriages, deaths, biographies, and newspapers. And part of the site is called the Indiana Memory Collection. And that feature has digitized images of county histories, oral histories, plat books, city directories, photographs, newspapers, yearbooks, and more. So, for example, I do a search on my last name, Kroom, and find lots of references to relatives. So this is a case where it's mostly indexes, but these index references can be really helpful and lead you to important discoveries in other collections. So, So it's worth checking indexes, too. Another Midwestern collection that I always find really interesting is the Iowa Heritage Digital Collections. It has Civil War diaries, county atlases, biographies, high school yearbooks, and a lot of other digitized items. And all of these were contributed by libraries, museums, and historical societies across the state of Iowa. Um, Browsing through this website again, um, they keep expanding it and adding new resources. I revisited their collection of Civil War diaries and letters. They have 223 now. And I think I might have even highlighted this one before, but I just came across this letter again, and it's so 
funny, I will quote from it again. Um, In a letter to his wife dated May 9, 1861 from Camp Morden near Indianapolis, Andrew Davis describes his fellow soldiers as follows. It is as motley a set of people as you ever saw. A great many are genteel, well-dressed, gentlemanly men. And then again, there is a great many of the most abandoned, dirty, ragged, lousiest-looking mortals that you ever saw. So it's really fun to read through these old letters. Of course, in Civil War diaries and letters, you come across a lot of accounts of tragedy during the war and deprivation, but it's interesting to um, read what these soldiers wrote to their families back home. Well, and it's a fascinating firsthand look at what it was really like, just right down there in the trenches. That's amazing. Yes. Awesome. Okay, well, so how about on the West Coast? What have you got for us? Well, I, I have to mention the terrific California digital newspaper collection. They are always adding new newspapers. They recently added 5 million new articles. So um, just about everybody has some relatives in California, it seems, and that's really a terrific website, the California Digital Newspaper Collection. I should also mention the Washington State Archives Digital Archives. Um, They have 2 million more records than last year, so now they have a total of 73 million searchable records online. And they include birth, marriage, death, census, cemetery, and naturalization records. And I have a lot of relatives who lived in Washington State. So if I search on my last name, Kroom, I get hundreds of matches, uh, many of which are close relatives even. And they cover a lot of records that you won't find on Ancestry or Family Search. And keep in mind, this is a free website, the Washington State Archives, Digital Archives, So it's well worth seeking out the state websites for records that you won't find on the the mega genealogy sites like Ancestry and Family Search. Well, I have interviewed the curator over there, and it is truly an amazing site. And the the collections they have and the care they put into um, getting them out there to the public is just phenomenal. Wow, great choices. Are there any websites that are brand new to the list this year? Yes, there are a few I should highlight. For instance, one is the History Harvest from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, and um, their digital archives has items actually from across the U.S., uh, but especially focusing on artifacts and immigrant families in Nebraska. Um, For example, uh, just browsing through the site, I saw a photograph of a sod house near Arnold, Nebraska, and it shows the Pierce family standing beside their sod house taken in about 1890. So even if you don't find your direct ancestors in some of these resources, uh, maybe you have ancestors who did live in a sod house. You can find a picture of a family um, living in a sod house near Arnold, Nebraska, and get a good idea of what it was like for your own ancestors. Uh, another really good new entry in our list is the New Jersey Digital Highway. It has biographies, books, citizenship papers, immigration records, and um, other records from uh, archives across New Jersey. And for example, I came across Civil War letters again. Those are always fascinating. One written by Private John McConnell 
a regimental musician uh, wrote to a friend at home, this being a soldier all the days of your life, I am getting tired of it. I think I would rather be home plowing wheat ground. (laughs) So that's on the New Jersey Digital Highway site. Another new collection on our list is from the University of South Carolina Libraries, their digital collections. And on that site, you'll find lots of valuable resources for researching your ancestors. They have almost 300 digital collections, and they include Bible records, city directories, church records, Civil War soldiers' letters, historical newspapers, and and even interviews with former slaves. Um, For example, there's an interview with a 101-year-old ex-slave named Susan Hamilton, And in the interview, she describes her family, whippings, and the separation of enslaved families. So on these state websites that we highlight in this article, uh, you find both index entries, which can lead you to important discoveries elsewhere. But a lot of these um, state websites also have digitized records and and pictures, uh, so um, you don't even need to follow up to locate a record somewhere else. The records are right there on the website, and most of the sites, state sites highlighted in this article are free, too. So it's well worth checking each one for the states where your ancestors lived. Oh, absolutely. Gosh, Rick, you've pulled together a fantastic list. I know everybody listening is going to be excited to dig into it. It's going to open up some new avenues for the new year. The article is called All Americans, and you will find it in the December 2019 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Rick Kroom, thank you so much. It's so good to talk to you again. Thanks, Lisa. It was fun. In this episode's Stories from the Stacks segment, we're going to explore the New York Public Library and specifically the Milstein Division of United States History, Local History, and Genealogy. Now, it's one of the largest public genealogical collections in the country, and here to tell us more about it is the reference librarian, Andy McCarthy. Hi, Andy. Welcome to the show. Hi, hi. Thanks for having me. There's so much we could talk about. I know we have just a short period of time, but I do know that obviously your library would have an emphasis on New York resources, but I know that you have stuff available for genealogists across the country and really around the world. So I'd love to have you give us kind of a brief overview of the genealogical resources that are available, particularly those that might be online, since, of course, many of our listeners are spread out across the country. Uh, sure. So we, we do have a certain focus on New York City in, in the sense that when people have questions about the history of New York City, they get directed towards our division. But that's what I feel like is one of the strengths of the Milstein Division is that our reference purview is very wide-angled. It's not just genealogy. It's not just family history. It's local history and U.S. history. All right, so we get a lot of different kinds of questions, and so we can throw a lot of things at um, our patrons uh, or recommendations, right? And I, I just want to stress, too, that myself and my colleagues, Phil Sutton and Sue Creedy, we are genealogy librarians, right? We're not genealogists. Um, and the first thing I wanted to highlight as far as online resources, which is the, the, you know, the, the, the focus of your question that the library makes available, um, 
is our email reference. Right? We do a lot of remote um, reference requests, people from all over the world, and it's not just questions about New York City or New York State, and it's not just questions about you know, genealogy or, or family history, but the bulk of them are. And I would say that if, even if you can't visit the library, you can still take advantage of the librarianship of emailing us and uh, asking questions. That makes us better librarians, um, is helping patients this way. And it, it's not the most, you know, you don't really think of the librarian as a resource, but that is a lot of the, the, this, this sense of librarianship, uh, sort of picking our brains is a, uh, a lot of you know, what we do. So that would, I would say first, reach out. Our email is history at NYPL. Org. Um, and it's on our website, too. If you just Googled Milstein Division NYPL, uh, you would you know, get to our homepage. Anyhow, the other thing I would stress, you know, because we don't – we subscribe to databases. It's not like we digitize things and put them online in, in a database format, although I am going to talk about it. I'll mention a couple things that we, we do because we do have a digital collections. I would stress using – the library's catalog, right? We have bazillions and bazillions and bazillions of books, periodicals, newspapers, etc. And if someone just wanted to kind of get a sense of what was available, you know, is there a local history on uh, Montgomery County in Ohio in, you know, the 1890s? Well, you could uh, sort of fish around our catalog, use the subject headings, and get a sense of what we have, and then that'll give you a larger sense of what is available because our collections are very extensive. You know, they've been collecting genealogy materials and local history materials at NYPL since the library started back in the day. So using the catalog not just to see, you know, oh, what can I access at the library, but kind of using it as um, as kind of a database of what is available, and uh, and you really want to take advantage of those the subject headings that um, that are used to group similar material together in the catalog record, email reference, and remote reference, and 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 and, and the catalog. I really want to stress here. Uh, as far as actual you know stuff, there are two digitized materials I'd point out. One is our city directory collection. So recently, uh, the libraries made available New York City city directories um, up to 1933 for the five boroughs. Manhattan is coming. That, that, the 1933 is, are the newest ones that went up there. Manhattan is, is going to be the last one to, to show up. Um, I mean, it's only, you know, like 3,000 pages or something. But city directories, anyone who's doing genealogy, uh, I'm sure you've used a city directory no matter what the locale is, if it's a county big city, small town, etc. And for the longest time, these were only available pretty much on microfilm. Um, and there was a project that uh, the division got involved in to digitize these things. And it's they're freely available online. They're not keyword searchable. You still have to go page by page, but, um, you know, to scroll through. And there's also the 1940 telephone directory is up there as well. Uh, so, and those are freely available online, like I said, at the digital collections, digitalcollections.nypl.org. Another resource is our, uh, our digitized 
fire insurance atlases. Now, the MAP division, there's the Milstein division, you know, U.S. History, Local History, Genealogy, and then there's the MAP division. We're sort of sibling uh, divisions under the same supervisor. And MAPs and Local History and Genealogy certainly play off one another. Maps are usually are going to, you know, typically are going to play a key role in your, in your family history or local history research. So the MAP division has digitized select fire insurance atlases for each of the five boroughs. They're up on our website. Um, they're arranged chronologically. And they're also part of this, um, I mean, what would you call it, this, this program called the Map Warper. And the Map Warper, without going too, into too much detail about it, basically um, overlays historic maps of New York City over the current map of New York City. And it's this, it's, it's this uh, crowdsourcing project where people can go in, create an account, and then take the digitized maps and, and over, overlay them the, the current map. And then there's this transparency bar where you can kind of drag it back and forth to kind of compare you know, what the block looked like in 1890 compared to today. So uh, those are the four that I'll highlight. Well, I think those are great examples of the fact that a library is so much more than what's online, and yet you have the tools on your website to help your patrons really discover all that's available also offline. Because as you said, emailing you is really the link, isn't it, to being able to... Uh, get access, maybe make a request. Well, Andy McCarthy, thank you so much for uh, taking us on a tour. And I have got to get over there myself in person someday. I hope I'll get a chance to meet you then. Yes, likewise. I hope to see you. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for this December 2019 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. This is the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. We covered a lot today, and you can check it all out at our website at familytreemagazine.com slash podcasts. There you will find everything about this show, including the show notes. And uh, if you've been listening on your computer, you'll find that there are a lot of new options and ways to listen to the show. So check that out. Again, thanks for joining me. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit my website at genealogygems.com, where you can listen to the Genealogy Gems podcast, which is available for free uh, through your favorite podcast app. And of course, we have an app in the App Store. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.